What is going on, ladies and gentlemen? Welcome to the Two Feet on the Ground Gravity Podcast. I am one of your hosts, Chris. Thank you for choosing to tune in today. Folks, this is a special episode for me. Today, I had the opportunity of interviewing someone who's really been a mentor to me in an unconventional way, in that we didn't sit down for regular mentor-mentee meetings, but instead, it was through his writings. He's the author of, of nine books through podcasts and other media productions that this man has really given me a great degree of encouragement. He, he, is, he has cheered me on uh, without him knowing. And then we, we, we have met a couple times and shared a meal together. Uh, just a great man that's experienced great loss in his life. And it's through those experiences and the comfort and love and encouragement that other people gave him that he is uh, where he is today. And it's because of that, that he really lives out a life of service in the people around him. In fact, I would say that he cares about you. No matter what season of life you're in, if you're feeling beaten up, if you're down, if you're discouraged, I would tell you that that Jerry cares about you, that his words today are for you. And I'm saying that because of our commonality as, as human beings. And I, I've seen him live that out as a man, uh, as I've watched him, him take care of complete strangers, but people that he recognized needed encouragement. Before we get into the interview, though, I want to talk about Service Peace Warriors. Service Peace Warriors is a 501c3 nonprofit that's dedicated to our nation's heroes. That's right, our men and women that are returning from overseas with war-related PTSD or other injuries. Service Peace Warriors is taking care of them. How? Through service animals. Service Peace Warriors does all the work. They raise all the money and they provide service animals. They train up service animals and train up our veterans to have these service animals at no cost to the veteran. And Service Peace Warriors actually took it a step further, folks. They started Maddox Dog Training Academy. And through the proceeds from their for-profit Maddox Dog Training Academy, they're further funding Service Peace Warriors. And then they're also providing service animals to our first responders, our police, fire, EMS folks that are struggling because of the exposure they've had in their, in their work life. Service Peace Warriors and Maddox Dog Training Academy is taking care of them. Folks, you got to check them out today, servicepeacewarriors.org. If you wanted to support them, it would cost you nothing. All you got to do is Google search Amazon Smile. You can figure out how you can connect your Amazon account to Service Peace Warriors. And then every time you spend a few pennies buying whatever on Amazon, Amazon's going to kick some pennies over to Service Peace Warriors. Check them out today, folks, Service Peace Warriors. .org. With that, folks, let's get into our interview with Jerry Sitzer. Jerry Sitzer, thank you for joining us here on the Gravity Podcast. Uh, my privilege, Chris. Appreciate it. Appreciate hey, the invitation. Yeah. Uh, hey, we already talked about, or I talked a little bit in the intro about it, but I was hoping for you to introduce yourself. You wear a number of hats from being a professor and an author being a husband, a father, and a grandfather. Can you just tell the listeners a little bit about you? Okay. Well, my name is uh, Jerry Sitzer. I'm uh, recently retired as a professor of theology at Whitworth University, although I still function there as a senior fellow uh, with my one of my closest friends, Terry McGonigal. We founded the Office of Church Engagement seven years ago, and I still work part-time in that, mostly as an external presence now, 
uh, at the university. I work a lot with churches and uh, universities and pastors and that kind of thing. I've also written nine books, uh, some a little bit more uh, tra- what they call trade books, that is for a, a wider reading audience, and some that are just <clears throat> on my specialty, which is church history. And I spend a lot of time with pastors in town, and I mentor some former students. I'm married to Patricia. We've been married 12 years. I was with her for 20 years and then remarried 12 years ago. And we have uh, five children between the two of us. They're all friends, which is wonderful, and they're all the same age. In fact, uh, married, uh, we have nine, we have 10 adult children, our own five, and then married. Uh, and they're seven years apart. So we have a big tribe all in their 30s. And then we have 11 grandchildren whom we see a lot. This sounds are, really are very rich and full. This sounds really noisy for holidays. That's the, I'm, I'm hearing the noise. Good noise. Yeah. Well, actually, you would hear the noise almost every day in our home. <laughs> yeah. Are a number of them there in the Spokane, Washington area? Yeah. Four of our kids moved back in about a two-year period of time, and they all live near us. And nine out of our 11 grandchildren live in Spokane, too. Wow. Get this, of our 11 grandchildren... Nine of them are five and under. Holy smokes. So it's it's delightfully chaotic. Yes. Yes. Hey, it, the last couple of years have been tough on everyone. The, as I listen to people across sectors in the faith-based community, profit, nonprofit, government, I hear stories over and over again about how challenging the last couple of years, whether it be COVID, whether it be political unrest, so many things have really brought people to to a breaking point in some regards, really challenging people's resolve or ability to stay grounded in life. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that that's really what started this this podcast in the first place is my wife and I talking and watching watching people get angry at each other, watching people dissolve relationship over things that we just didn't see happening before. You've had a lot of life experience and you've walked with a lot of college, college adults. And I'm, I'm focusing on that because one, that's your experience. And I just see college adults oftentimes asking similar questions of who am I and what is my purpose? How do you maintain perspective in life? How do you identify those foundations and stay grounded? Well, you've really asked two questions and I'll, I'll answer them in order. The first has to do with our larger social circumstances, what's happened. And uh, I see this as a confluence of forces that have all kind of come at the same time, maybe like six rivers that are all flowing into one big river. And uh, and then with a lot of torrential rain, it's created flood conditions. So uh, some of the obvious ones obvi- uh, are uh, COVID in the last two and a half years. But behind COVID is a kind of um, social disruption. It's not simply COVID itself. It's how we've responded to COVID our anger about COVID, our anger at other people who've responded differently to uh, the epidemic than we have, for example, our suspicion of government, uh, our suspicion of science. Uh, people don't realize that science changes its mind with the uh, with more evidence. And one reason why uh, the CDC has been changing from time to time is because as research brings in more data, they realize, oh, that doesn't work and this does work and so on. But the level of suspicion is so high 
when it comes to CDC, it's created a lot of divisions in our culture. So that's one, COVID. A second one is our political dysfunction. We've become a profoundly divided country. I mean, you hear uh, the talk as much as as I do, or even more so. That is, people are talking about a civil war, and and uh, our our confidence in government is at an all time low, and so on. And in the past, there have been some pretty significant political divisions in our country. I mean, the worst by far was the civil war. But in our more modern period, we've been able to work that out in a way that's relatively harmonious. But really since the year 2000, Chris, with uh, with with the elections, with the disputed elections, that has been growing. The presidency and then the defeat of Donald Trump is really more uh, a symptom than it is the disease itself. There's been a buildup to that for a long time. So I would say political polarization is the second river that's created these flood conditions. I think a third is that we've not learned how to manage the internet yet. It's such a new phenomenon. I mean, you and I remember when there was no internet, or at least I do, I'm 72 years old. When I was in college, we were using a calculator that was as big as a large desk. And we were using cards and running them through computers that were the size of my study now just to get a few printouts. Well, now, of course, it's changed dramatically. And probably the most important a tip of the iceberg there is the, um, is the use of the mobile phone and our access to immediate information and what tech companies have done to create algorithms to constantly feed us more information that reinforces our interests or, as the case might be, our prejudices. So more and more, we're getting streams of information, whether it's films or music or news, that is reinforcing our tastes, our interests, and our prejudices. So instead of all reading the same newspaper or watching the same three or four shows on TV, Uh, when we were in the network era, everything has become profoundly fragmented. And that isn't necessarily bad, but we are focusing on that particular fragment that's only reinforcing what we already believe. That's one problem with the internet. A second problem is what it's doing to our brains. It's literally changing the way our brains function. Instead of deep, deep neural pathways, which is how healthy brains should function, we have neural pathways that are profoundly confused because we're always dipping in. We skim something. We hop from one uh, site to another. We don't absorb. We don't think deeply about something. We're skipping around. We're flitting from one thing to the next like a like a little bird. I look at it. I, I, I use this analogy is that our our brains need to have some deep neural pathways like Grand Canyons to function properly things that we really know and know well, whether it's as a plumber or an electrician or a surgeon or a teacher or a police officer, or whatever. But our, our brains have become more like river deltas where everything is flowing everywhere, but there's no clear pathway. And so that that's another factor we don't think about much is the biological impact that the in, in, internet has had on even how our brains function. So our ability to concentrate on something has diminished. How many people read has diminished. 
that has uh, played a role too. And of course, you and I know because of our contact with youth that uh, the impact of the internet has had a, a disproportionately sizable impact on the younger generation who don't know life apart from the internet and through TikTok, Instagram and messaging and Facebook and so on. They're being barraged by this by this sort of uh, s- social pressure on them. They know many and they know few at the same time. Mm. So the level of loneliness among our youth has skyrocketed. Yes, and I've seen it. More, I mean, there's a direct relationship between the more time you spend on your mobile phone and the more depressed you become. There is a direct relationship research has established between the two. And it's strange because kids aren't getting licenses at 16 anymore. They're not going out as much as they used to with a pack of friends. They're staying in their rooms and their socializing is all through mobile phones. The problem is that all of that is curated, isn't it? I mean, you're reading about a self that doesn't exist. You're reading about a self that's airbrushed, so to speak. And it gives people the chance to be mean in an anonymous way or to present a self that doesn't actually exist. So it's created a great deal of confusion among the entire population, but especially among our youth. So I would add that as kind of a fourth factor that has really created a lot of social confusion. And the last is this, Chris. And again, we don't think about this as much. And that is the breakdown of social institutions in America in general. There's a very famous uh, Harvard sociologist, Robert Putnam is his name. He um, made his career early on by writing a book called Bowling Alone, which is a great title, by the way. And his most recent is called Upswing. It's a big, big book. It's thick and hard going, but fascinating. And he marshals a massive amount of data to show that all major social institutions in America are in precipitous decline. So I always use these two as funny examples. How many people are going to send their kids to Boy Scouts compared to, say, two generations ago? Well, they're not. How many people joined the Rotary? Well, it still exists, but it's maybe a third of what it used to be. And then you add on to that. It's replaced by what I call niche organizations that don't really serve the larger social good. So it might be a bike club or a mountain climbing club or something like that. Now you find some friends, but they're they're niche in orientation as opposed to say the old YMCA or YWCA or Boy Scouts or other things that had the larger social good in mind and provided a great deal of services. Yeah. Social and material to the larger public. Well, listen, all of those institutions are in decline. And so we have this huge vacuum in the middle of society between government and the individual self that aren't functioning as well as they used to. I throw public education into that too. Now, public education is doing a better job than we think it is. We're probably having more problems on the family level than we are in public schools, but it puts enormous pressure on public schools to provide services that historically they've not had to do. Counseling, for example, food, and so on and so forth. And we, it creates expectations 
that public education is impossible to fulfill. Well, you get the idea. I've gone on too long, but this is a very volatile, very fragile period in American history. And it's people like you and me and many others who need to step into that vacuum with our churches and other organizations, our our teams and clubs, and try to figure out how to serve the larger common good of society in ways that create social stability that will mitigate many of the other things I described, COVID, for example, and the isolation of mobile phones and so on. So how do you maintain perspective? I mean, that, I, I love the way you've painted that picture, and I think you're spot on. But what are the disciplines in your life, in Patricia's life, in your family's life that help you guys maintain perspective? Well, again, that that would require a fairly long answer. Uh, and, but but you know, in one sense, that that's a good thing. Uh, I the analogy I use here is a molecule. Now, that's a, a a term that refers to how atoms are bound together. A protein molecule, for example, has got hundreds of atoms that are all connected through bonds, okay? And a healthy human life is connected to a larger molecular structure. Okay, so you've got an influential coach or two in your life, and they care about you as a human being, not just whether you can put a lot of points through the net or you're a good soccer player or whatever it happens to be. Uh, You've got a couple of neighborhood families you know, and they look out for you. They might call your mom or your dad and say, uh, you know, I noticed that uh, your your daughter Sally is across the street and um, she's playing, she's starting to play in the street. You see, you have that lookout and a four-year-old shouldn't be doing that, you see. Uh, You've got some connections at a school, Uh, a teacher who's kind of taken you under his or her wing or a coach or a club, a choir, something like that. Uh, you've got a, a grandma who plays a big role in your life. You, 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 getting the feel for this sort of molecular structure that creates a context, a rich relational context for us in which to grow up. And that is not happening to the degree that it once did. It's not going to happen as much through families now because of our mobile society. It has to happen through the creation of really of new kind of families where you adopt some people into your home if you have a more uh, traditional nuclear family, uh, a single person who's 31, uh, a widow who's 59, uh, an older person who's living alone who's looking for some grandchildren to take, take care of. You, We create a new kind of molecular structure that, again, helps us develop a rich social environment in which to grow up. So I'd say that's one thing. I mean, I'm Christian. And uh, the church at its best uh, does do that and can do that through its various programs and its uh, rich uh, texture of relationships. It doesn't always do it. It doesn't have to be perfect to do it, but enough do it to show a sign of real hope there. That's certainly been the case for me. Now, I mentioned, you know, I was widowed. I lost my wife when I was 41 years old and lost a child to in an accident. And I had three young children uh, to raise. Now, I was a pretty stable 41-year-old. My my life was stable before the accident occurred, but I created a kind of molecular family. 
I mean, some single people, some older people, some married couples, young, different ages. And that became a unit of relationship, a, a different kind of family. In the Roman world, it was called the household. That might include a servant or a slave or a merchant. And it was a larger group, a community of people. When the Christian movement got started in the ancient world, they created household churches, not house churches, household churches. And there was this gathering of anywhere from 50 to 75 people that all kind of did life together. So one is that we have to figure out how to create that household under very different social circumstances that might not exactly follow the more traditional nuclear family with, you know, grandparents thrown in. You know, in our case, we had kids move back to Spokane, and we have that as a family. We watch our grandkids. We see our kids at least once a week. They kind of circle through. They have their own networks of relationships, and we we know their friends, even if we don't spend a lot of time with them. So you 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 find, you create, you find a group of people that you can do life with. And that's more than simply a coach that's going to help your child become a professional athlete or something, which of course for is nonsense most of the time, you know, or a teacher. It, it has to go a little bit deeper than that. So that's certainly one thing I think that needs to happen. Another one, Chris, for people like you and me, people who are relatively stable, a little bit older. I mean, I'm quite a bit older than you are. I'm 72 years old and I've I've good health. I have a rich collection of relationships. We've got to step up. We have to stop thinking about the ideal as a kind of gated community that protects our interests and our bank account and allows us to kind of live life on our own terms. We have to step up and step into that vacuum. And there are lots of ways of doing it by adopting a young couple, a young family, something like that, getting involved in a social institution as a, as a volunteer, donating from our wealth, because boomers, my generation, we control the money. We have a lot of money. And people who are younger don't have the money and don't have the resources even to buy homes. We need to step up with our generosity would be Another thing uh, we can and should do. Uh, my wife uh, and me, for example, we do a lot of pre-marriage counseling now. She's a therapist and I am a pastor as well as a, as a, a theologian, a scholar. And we always have two or three going at once. And some of them are, you know, 25-year-olds getting married and we spend six or seven appointments with them and we kind of talk through marriage. They follow a guidebook that we created. But we also have some older couples. We're working, just starting to work with a couple right now. He's 60. She's maybe 53. They've both been married before. They come from a, a, a little bit more difficult family background. <clears throat> They're both recovering alcoholics. In fact, they met in AA. And that's what we do. And you have to figure out what you do. But we need to take greater responsibility for the common good of society. We need to, to go to churches and plug in and join organizations that, again, their goal is to serve the common good. So that's the second thing. A third is our belief system. Now, this is going to sound a little strange, but I'll give you this example. When I lost my wife and my daughter and my mother, so all three were uh, killed in this accident, 
I eventually returned to church because I'm Christian and active in a church. And uh, Chris, I didn't, I didn't have the energy to do anything. I was trying to figure out how to raise a traumatized eight-year-old, six-year-old, and two-year-old. And I'd show up at church. I couldn't sing. I'd just start to cry. I couldn't really pray. I didn't know what to say. And I discovered that the believing community did it for me. People sang for me. Now, they didn't know they were doing it. But by singing, they kind of carried me along. It created a kind of wake that drew me forward. And they, they prayed for me. They prayed for me in two ways. They prayed literally for me, but they also prayed on behalf of me because I couldn't find a voice for praying. Now, I do the same thing for other people. Every time I'm in worship on a Sunday, I think there are people there who are broken, who are lonely, who are confused, who are facing doubt, maybe suffering some kind of trauma that nobody knows. And when I step into that building and I worship, I'm not just worshiping for me anymore. I'm worshiping for other people. Mm. Our, our belief system, whatever it happens to be, if it's got some coherence, some uh, cogency to it, some power to it, if it's, if it's good for the human community, I would say Christianity is that. Maybe there are other belief systems that are too, but certainly I believe that. In one sense, our belief system plays a role in creating health and stability mm. uh, for other people. It's not just theirs, it's ours for them. When, when you meet somebody, and I know you have, Chris, when you meet somebody who's suffered a trauma or a huge loss, they're in a really hard place, say they're super anxious or they're really depressed or something, our belief system plays a role in their lives, not, not because we're proselytizing them, but because it's been our strength and the strength that's in us can play a role in being a strength for them too. Yes. In other words, we can carry them on our back for a while. That's kind of what you do when you're older and you're more mature. You do that for other people. It's kind of the job description. You don't check out a life. You step back into it. Yeah. Now you step into it with a lot more experience and we hope a lot more stability. And you start to well, here's how the Bible puts it. You start bearing the burdens of other people. It's interesting when Paul finishes that, he says, so each in the end will bear their own load. In other words, you bear their burdens to get them back on their feet. So they become functional members in our society. Now, that's a really, really big deal for me. My uh, wife and I have a large social circle, and we've got any number of people who are struggling, as we have in the past. I mean, cancer, loss of a child, whatever happens. And our job is to step in and and be the, those shoulders for other people as people have done it for us. I love you saying this. And I remember in your book, A Grace Disguised, you you paint that picture of talking about specific people that, that carried you on their shoulders. But I also saw you live this out, Jerry. Uh, we haven't shared this with the listeners, but you and I first met at a at a camp, a family camp north of Spokane, Camp Spalding. And I remember sitting under the covered patio and I was reading a book. You were you a paid speaker. So you're supposed to, you know, give your two hour blocks and then you can do whatever you want with your wife and son who are there. And instead, well, my, I, my son was a co-speaker, which he, is kind of. Yes, David was co-speaker. Yeah, yes. yeah. Uh-huh. But this is what I this is when I fell in love with you. Because I, and this is where I learned 
a pretty profound um, lesson from you, and it and it totally involves what you were just saying. Is I, I watched you watch other parents, and I'm telling you, as a parents of young children, I need to be encouraged. We don't know what how to do this. There's no instruction manual that tells you when, when to feed them and how to burp them and all this stuff. We're just we're doing the best we can mm-hmm. to figure it out with unique human beings, each one of our kids. And I watched you watching this mother, and then you got up and you went over to him and you you you, you affirmed her. You are doing a great job as a mom. And it just connected with my heart because I believe that if we did this as people, if we looked for excuses to engage other human beings and affirm them wherever they're at, you're doing a great job as a mom. You're doing a great job as a husband, as a wife. Heck, let's just get down to, those are some pretty nice shoes that you got on. But Mm -hmm. I, I feel like we've lost this as a, maybe as an American community, maybe as a world community where we're speaking positive words into other people's lives. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's just one, that's one example of what I'm going to say more well-established people ought to be doing. They should be attentive to the larger human community. And uh, whether it's just whispering a prayer privately or going up and saying, uh, you know, let me take, let me take that screaming two-year-old for a while or whatever, so that we, I mean, those are two very small examples of what we do. We volunteer to coach, and our goal is not to win, but to to, to develop those people as human beings. Yes. Because because 100% of them are not going to become professional athletes. Our goal is is not to get them to make $100 million. It's to help them take their place in society as mature adults who can bear the load of other people. That's how it's supposed to work. And a lot of that is organic and small scale. You know, Chris, we we expect so much from larger institutions. We're constantly shaming public schools. We're constantly complaining about government. And we don't realize that this whole system we call America has worked because of what sociologists call mediating institutions, smaller scale, clubs, organizations, schools, churches, uh, athletic teams, where the goal is not win, power, get your own way. It's to serve, to care, to develop people as human beings, to nurture them in resilience. Yes. I coached both my boys in soccer and my daughter in basketball, and they were pretty successful teams, but there were some tough losses along the way too. And I actually thought the losses did more good than the victories. We learn more from our failures. Yes. Oh yeah. And injuries. My, my son was a great uh, runner in uh, high school and he was on a number of state championship running teams and is going to his senior year. He was ranked number two in the state and he was team captain and he was working out in the summer, landed wrong after jumping over a kind of a, a, a high wall and destroyed his knee. And he lost his whole senior season. And he would say now it's one of the best things that ever happened to him. You know, research has been done on resilience and resilience is formed when you face small adversities when you're younger. And instead of being rescued, somebody comes alongside you and helps you respond to that adversity or disappointment in a way that's good for you long term. So you've got a third grade teacher and she's not horrible 
but there's just no chemistry between your son and that third grade teacher. And instead of immediately going to the principal and saying, I want a different classroom, you help your your son respond to that teacher and learn how to, and same would be with a, a bad coach or a, a classmate that's unkind. I mean, we want to intervene when our child is in danger psychologically or physically, but there's a whole lot of room there for them to learn resilience through the small disappointments and adversities of life so that when they're your age and my age and we really get beaten up, we've got the deeper inner resources to be able to respond because we've been put to the test for many years before that in smaller ways. Yeah. I wanted to go to something in one of your books, your book, Love One Another, because I feel like it plays on this a little bit. I really strive within my workplace and in my home. It's okay to fail. Let's not hide our failures. Failure is okay because I agree with you. It's those losses, those times that we trip up where we're going to learn the most. But unfortunately, I feel like we have in some cultures, whether it be work cultures or home cultures, we expect perfection. We don't offer grace. And in your book, you wrote, you write, uh, forbearance requires that we give people room, room to be who they are, to become who God intends, to contribute to the church and the world despite their imperfections. And I'm just hearing grace come out of this. Grace indeed. What, yeah. what, what role does this play in us having a greater capacity to show others grace? Well, Here's the interesting thing, Chris, is that there are two ways of thinking about maturity. One is what I'd call mistakelessness. So you always get a perfect score on a math quiz, for example. Okay. Your team always comes out with a perfect record, 10 and 0, or whatever it happens to be. What's symbolized there is that you meet the standard of perfection that's applicable in that particular set of circumstances, like the math quiz. The problem with that is that it doesn't build maturity. Much of life does not give us a grade. Uh, I mean, I, I, I write, I'm a writer. And there are two ways of thinking about writing. One is the English teacher giving you 100%. And the other one is really learning how to be a writer. So you discover your own voice, you discover your own style. You create something that's beautiful and insightful, but can't be subject to kind of the traditional grade. Well, what God wants to raise is mature people, not perfect people, not, not antiseptically perfect, where there's no flaw, but there's no depth, richness, maturity, no character. And you know the difference between the two. You know the difference between a person who never makes a mistake and a person who has genuine maturity. And maturity requires failure. You, you simply can't become mature by getting it right all the time because you kind of miss the point, actually. Here's where we can learn something from science. Science advances through failure. I mean, how many times do scientists do an experiment and it tanks? And then finally, they have a breakthrough. You know, in my many years at Whitworth, we got a lot of uh, uh, foundation or we got a lot of grants from the Lilly Endowment. It's a huge granting uh, endowment organization. And I mean, millions of dollars. And Lilly always said to us in the Office of Church Engagement, where most of the money has come, Lilly always said to us, 
We're not bothered by failure with the new programs you're developing. It's bound to happen. If you take risks, you're going to fail. What we want to see is that you're learning from the failures. Mm. Now, that's what science does. You learn from the failures until you finally get a scientific breakthrough. Well, that's how we should, in my mind, how we should be living life. Learning from the failures. No, first taking risks, trying a new sport, playing a piano, trying to write a book, taking on a new job, a new position. How about the risk of getting married? Oh, my gosh. We're crazy to think about that. (laughs) Or raising children. I mean, sort of the bigger stuff in life. That's full of risk. And you're not going to get it right all the time. But in failing along the way, you're going to learn maturity. You're going to become a full, seasoned, wise, deep human being. Yeah, And that, in my mind, is what the goal of life is, at least more so. I've heard you use the word, we are made for relationships. And I feel like that really sums up a lot of what we've been talking about. Why, why do you believe that, that we're made for relationships? Well, again, I speak as a Christian now, but the Christian faith teaches us that we've been made in the image of God. We're not, we're not a biological mistake or a biological accident. Uh, when God decided to create the world with all its rich diversity, all its all its inanimate objects and animate objects from uh, a one-celled creature all the way up to something as complex as a, a porpoise or a chimpanzee or a giraffe or something like that. In the biblical story, it says that we're the crown of that creation. We we are we are like God in a way that no other creature even gets close to, in the image of God. One of the Psalms says, we're made just a little less than God. And that self requires cultivation, nurturing. You don't know that when you're born. When you're born, you don't know anything. You learn a lot about yourself, your abilities, your strengths, your weaknesses, your capacities. You learn almost all of it through relationship. There's a a, a lovely phrase I read in a book recently that said, when you're born, you're looking for someone who's looking for you. And you open your eyes and eight inches from your eyes, looking a little blurry, are those bright, bright eyes and that big, sweet, tired smile of a mother who just Mm. gave birth to you and of a father who's so proud, not just of his new baby, but of the wife that brought him or her into the world. And immediately you start getting feedback. You're loved. You're wanted. You matter. You've got stuff in you that can grow and develop. How do we learn language? We learn it relationally. You learn it by listening to sounds and listening to words and listening to tones from your mom and dad and then brothers and sisters and aunts and uncles and so on and so forth, you know, finally teachers. Much of what we are, much of what we become, much of how we contribute to the world, almost all of it comes through relationship. That gives a sense of belonging, a sense of identity, a sense of confidence about our capacity to be a musician or an athlete or an engineer, and so on and so forth. So if we have a set of reasonably healthy relationships surrounding us, it's much more likely we're going to take our place in the world as 
grounded, mature, stable, resilient adults. All through relationships, Chris. Love it. Hey, uh, if listeners haven't heard of you before and they want to follow more of what you're writing, more of your thoughts, what, what's the best way for folks to follow you? Yeah, I would say uh, go to my webpage, jerrysitzer.com, no spaces, just J-E-R-R-Y-S-I-T-T-S-E-R.com. I uh, write a weekly blog. I've got my books there, speaking things, podcasts, just a, a, a large kind of media presence, or just to my Facebook page and friend me, Jerry Sitzer. That would awesome. be two ways, and that give you a little big, bigger exposure. And I thank you. Yeah, and for the, the listeners, go ahead and look down in the uh, show notes, and there'll be links to both jerrysitzer.com and to his Facebook page. Jerry, time is my greatest commodity. I, I can't make more of it. And you have given me so much of yours at camp uh, during mealtime and now in this interview. So thank you, sir. Uh, my pleasure, Chris. Lovely to be with you. And just good to see you again. You as well. Take care. I wish you well. Wow, ladies and gentlemen, you know, I don't usually do it here on the interviews, but if you've listened to Marriage Mondays, you know, at the end of the episode, Jamie always gives us a call to action. And I really heard a call to action in Jerry's message. And that was that we have a certain responsibility. We have a responsibility to uh, to go out and encourage each other, right? To go out and and pick each other up. Let's show each other some grace. Failure is okay. Uh, I know that's an awful lot that I just peppered you with, but uh, I think it's a strong call to action for us to go out and live out on a daily basis. Hey folks, Jamie and I want to hear from you. How are we doing here on the podcast? There's a few different ways you can communicate back to us. If you're consuming this on YouTube, on Apple, on Spotify, you can rate and review us, give us thumbs up. Doing that increases our viewability on those platforms. On Apple and Spotify, there's a five-star system. Go to our main page, go down to the bottom. There's five little stars waiting down there. We'd really appreciate a five-star waiting rating. Can't even talk here, folks. If, if we've earned it, folks. If we haven't earned it, keep your stars. They're yours. Instead, maybe shoot me an email at chris at gravityct.com. Let us know how to make it better, maybe future Marriage Monday topics or guests for me to interview. Folks, we only get to live this life once. Let's go out and take care of each other, love each other. Take care. God bless.